Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and what I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. But before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Human Octane. If you're the kind of person who pushes the limit, then you've got to check out Human Octane Apparel. Training and racing apparel designed by OCR athletes and these guys just get it. Everything they make dries lightning fast, has zippered pockets, is abrasion resistant in high contact areas without bulky padding. I've gotten to know these guys and trust me, they're going to out-innovate the competition when it comes to OCR gear. Check them out at humanoctane.com. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. Good morning, folks. Sean Kahn here, co-host of the Natural Running Network. I'm here with Rich today, and we have a very appetizing topic to discuss. Rich, how are you? You know, I'm doing really well. Uh, the weather's broke here. We're no longer dealing with all this heat we've been facing. It's now starting to feel like fall. I'm excited. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting, too. I know I talked last week where it's 45. It's it's 55 this week, but it feels like it's 75. I, it's just, you know, Mother Nature uh, is varying each week. But to just, you know, get right into it, how about we talk about motor skill development? What an excellent idea. I'm so glad you thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, truth be told, this has been on my mind for quite a long time now. And it's one of those things that, first of all, the concept of motor skill development drills, I believe they are actually the holy grail of opening up the potential for performance as an athlete. And I, I was careful to say athlete opposed to OCR or running athlete because in every other sport, if you think about it, skill development is a preeminent concern. If you were to try to become a proficient swimmer and you hired a coach and they put you in the pool they're going to be so omnifocused on the way you move, how your hand enters the water, the way your body glides through the water, what your pull looks like, where your hand comes out of the water, what your legs look like in the water, what your feet are doing. They're not going to be talking about, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to you know, do 50-meter repeats on X time with X recovery. Then we're going to go to 100-meter repeats or 200-meter repeats. It is not going to be about how far you can travel and how quickly you can do it today. It's going to be about the way you move. And the understanding is that when we correct the way you move, that ultimately the speed and the sustainability of pace will come. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those that I feel like, similar to everything we talk about in terms of cadence, form, heart rate, it's just one that really needs to be expounded upon. And I think from the perspective that you have, this would happen almost in terms of correcting these abnormalities at pretty much that breaking point in, in terms of your, your, uh, your run or let's say when you're going a faster pace. This is kind of when you know these type of things kind of come rising, correct? That's correct. Now, okay. I have to tell you that well, I had, I had already told you, but I'm going to reiterate it for the audience. I've gotten lazy about presenting this information, especially from a virtual perspective, because it's so hard to get people to understand it. And I've actually been a little bit remiss in writing this type of workout in my virtual coaching program because, as I suggested to you, it always is followed by 50,000 questions of, I don't get it, what am I supposed to do, how is this supposed to work? They just don't know how to approach the work. But I think it's irresponsible of me to know what I know and not drive it home incessantly. 
I used to do it. And I kind of, I think I just got frustrated. It's hard to get people to understand it. Now, as you found, and many of the people that have ever attended one of my running clinics, they know that during the fundamentals of form, this is where we end up. I actually orchestrate these motor skill drills with people to teach them what it is they're trying to accomplish. And oftentimes, even in that setting, I'll see, let's say, for example, I have 20 people out running on an open field or on a track that the great majority of them are doing it wrong. And the reason I find myself in this dilemma and the reason I find myself wanting to bring this back to light is because it's so important. And what we're really talking about when I speak of motor skill development is essentially finding and pushing back on what I refer to as your mechanical threshold. So yesterday, knowing that we're going to have this conversation, I was thinking of all these moronic analogies that I usually come up with to try to explain things. And if you look at motorsport, they're so concerned about how stable these vehicles are as they go into speed. Uh, I guess a better example might be when they were trying to set the world speed records at the Bonneville Salt Flats with these jet cars. As these vehicles begin approaching peak velocity, then things start to get a little edgy where the thing starts vibrating violently. It's trying to lift off the ground. And essentially, this is a mechanical and in a lot of respects in that case, aerodynamic threshold. Now, obviously, we're not going to go fast enough for aerodynamics to be a problem. All right, so let's talk about this mechanical threshold for a minute. And we need to have some imagination in play here. So, Sean, I want you to think about you standing on a track. You're ready to go. You're warmed up. Okay. You ready? Yes. All right, so, Sean, what I want you to do is I want you to start running. And I want you to be hyper-conscious of all the deal points in respect to what proper form would look like. And because our focus is to improve our ability to sustain pace for a length of time, and I, I was very careful to preface what I'm gonna say next because a lot of people get confused with this, but most of the athletes I deal with are going to run in excess of a mile or in some cases, ultra marathons. So sustainability of pace is extremely important, right? Now, we're going to achieve a cadence of 180 strides per minute right out of the gate. So I want you to purposely run slow. And if I had to give it a term, let's call it about a 15-minute mile pace. Okay. Even though that you're at that 15-minute mile pace, I want you to have your cadence to be at 180 strides per minute. Now, this is going to be cumbersome. It's not going to feel right. And it's because your gait is going to be seemingly very choppy. But what's going to happen is your contact point with the ground is going to be very near your center of mass. It would be almost impossible to overstride at a 15-minute mile pace with a cadence of 180 strides per minute. Are you with me? I'm with you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. All right. Now, what I need you to do, Sean, is I want you to progressively improve your pace. And while you're improving your pace, I want you to adhere to that 180 strides per minute. And as you adhere to that stride frequency, we're also going to be very conscious of our posture in space. We want a bit of a forward lean. I want you to try to imagine that I've hooked a bungee cord to your chest and I'm in a cart 50 yards ahead of you drawing on your chest. So you have this pull that's going to cause your posture to lean forward just a little bit. And I'm not talking about from the waist. I'm talking about from the heels. So you're essentially in a a falling posture, like a board falling forward, just ever so slightly, so that you're not perpendicular with the ground. And then you're going to lead out with your knees. 
You're going to square your shoulders up with your hips. You're not going to rotate at the torso. You're not going to cause your arms to swing across your body. And you're going to keep a nice rhythmic arm swing where your arm is going to be bent with your thumb a little above 90 degrees from the crease of your elbow. Now, I want you to progressively improve your speed, maintaining that posture, maintaining that forefoot contact with the earth, and I want you to progressively increase your speed, staying on 180 strides per minute. So let's take you around the track. Let's say that at this point in the road now, you're about 300 yards or 300 meters around the track. By this point, you should be pretty close to your peak velocity, meaning that this is about as fast as you can run. And if you get to that point without any flaws in that list of concerns that I had just given you, then everything is golden. But I still want you to back off. I want you to back all the way off, even if it comes back to a walk. And I want you to look at your heart rate because I you're obviously going to be looking at your heart rate monitor. I want to govern these intervals by a recovery heart rate. And absent having tested you to see how long it takes you to recover from your peak effort, let's just use 120 beats per minute for this moment in time. All right? So... Because we're wearing this monitor, we also have GPS. And the GPS later is going to tell us what that peak velocity produced, how many miles per hour you were running, or what your peak per minute per mile pace was, okay? And then after we've recovered, we're going to try it again. And we're going to repeat the process. Now, in most cases, most athletes will find this mechanical threshold, this point in where that anything beyond that particular pace would be flawed. Something goes wrong. And typically what it is, is that they start to paw at the ground. They start to reach ahead of themselves further and further and further, which starts to invoke a braking force, starts to produce uh, unnecessary and unwanted vertical oscillation, so you're going up and down as opposed to going forward, which detracts from your forward progress. And you'll start to migrate towards the back part of your foot. You're going to go closer to your heel. And so everything has just gone awry. And if you got to that point, or if you've been at that point for, say, the last 15 or 20 seconds, you're actually encouraging those mistakes. You want to catch yourself before you get to that point. You want to catch yourself when you first identify that things are starting to go badly and then okay. back off. So then as you're recovering, you're going to start asking yourself some very pointed questions. What is the mechanism that I need to employ to correct that particular flaw? So... Having said what I just said, do you have any questions about anything that I just said? So it's funny you say this, Rich, because not to its full capacity in terms of everything that you touched on. I did a workout this morning, uh, mile repeats on the track. Now, this was the first time I did mile repeats on the track in an aerobic state. So I wasn't going to, you know, let's say a peak velocity in let's say in an anaerobic state or over that but the peak velocity um was pretty much stopped if i hit 160 beats per minute over now what i was also maintaining to achieve and striving to achieve uh is 180 beats per minute heart rate is is staying within that zone as well as my arm swing moving forward almost that hips to nips mentality with the arm swing and then ensuring that pretty much the base of my foot is hitting the ground while making sure that, that there is heel contact on the ground. But that doesn't come first. That comes second using that power to, to push to the next step. So it's just uh, I understand what you're saying now going into more of the, the form of, hey, when you're striving to go a much faster pace, that's when these things come come to fruition. And 
if you don't notice it, well, that's when things go go to shame. Well, you, what happens is you start to migrate. In most cases, what ends up happening is athletes will start to begin reaching ahead of themselves with their feet. And they'll start to, essentially, the overstride that they create becomes a breaking force. And it's not apparent while it's occurring. When it becomes apparent is when you've done it for a while. And after the fact, you notice these sorenesses. It could be a variety of things, depending on the way your leg is extended ahead of you. Um, if your knee is locked out, if you're uh, dorsiflexed at the ankle, when you make contact on your heel, there's just so many things that can lead to very particular types of injuries or sorenesses, and they become chronic. So let's just say that, and by the way, everybody you know, everybody I know, when you say, hey, I'm going to go to the track and do a track workout, nine out of ten times, they they get a little, oh, really, track workout, ah, oh. because it always invokes the concern of pain. The following day is going to suck, right? Now, absolutely. It, I want to tell you that intensity in the effort is not the culprit behind the soreness. It's the corruption in the way you move. Hitting the ground badly, repetitively, at that intensity that is the culprit behind the soreness and the injuries. If you run well, you don't really have that type of an experience with it. The problem is that most people don't understand what the mechanism is that they're trying to achieve. And again, this is why I said this is so important. And realize that, first of all, I wrote my book, which includes this information in it, about nine years ago. And I've been working on the science of this motor skill development ever since. When I was thinking about writing this book, it was paramount in my mind. Because I've had the opportunity to work with people at very violent speeds. I say violent because well beyond the human capacity to run. You know what I'm talking about. I put somebody on my treadmill that has the capacity to go 28 miles per hour in either direction with upwards of a 30% incline, and I drop people onto speed like little guinea pigs to find out how they can best adapt to that speed. And through the science and the work that I've done over the last decade, I started to really build this thought process in respect to the importance of this mechanical aptitude, where you're making contact with the ground, and what your body's doing in order to find this speed that seems to be so evasive. Because most people, and we talked about this the other day, most people, when they're trying to achieve speed or trying to increase their performance, they have basically one trigger that they pull on. I can't get there because I'm not doing enough work. I need more intensity. It's one or the other. They either try to do more of it or they try to do harder workouts. And both of those are not the answer. The answer is find the flaws that are inherent in the way you're moving, correct those, and it's like you open Pandora's box. It's like pulling the thorn out of your paw. All of a sudden, whoa, you're achieving speeds at much less effort. And your cost factor for the work goes down. And I have clients that have successfully achieved this. And when they have that aha moment, they contact me. They go, dude, you're not going to believe it. The other day, I da-da-da-da-da-da, and I was able to do this or that or that. And they were able to do it with so much less effort that it freaks them out. I mean, they literally are freaked out by the outcome of having found that, that perfect storm where everything just kind of fell into place. And it may initially not be sustainable. It might be something that they, they felt for a minute. It might have been something they were able to pull off for two or three minutes. And ultimately, after you've, you've finally found it, you're able to sustain it for greater and greater lengths of time. But you have to feel it. You have to get to that place where you finally feel it. 
And this is generally outside the box for most people. And it's ironic because I tell people when I'm teaching them to improve their running, in other words, I've got them to stop doing what they were doing wrong, what I'm asking them to do seems so foreign to them. It feels so like, oh, God, this feels weird. And I've told people, if it doesn't feel weird, then you're not doing it right. <laughs> because initially, change is always going to feel odd. And the problem with most people is they don't want to feel odd. They want to go back to what is comfortable in something they know and understand, as opposed to going into this, you know, this, this black hole of effort that they're not comfortable with. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. I, I mean, it, it goes to the, the, you know, the, the starting conversation, I mean, that you have, let's say, with clients in your clinics that haven't really been apprised to proper running form of, you know, learning how to hit the ground, learning these arm swings, learning pretty much all the necessary protocol to run efficiently and effectively, and then going to base building and, you know, striving to hit that 180, uh, you know, steps per minute. Um, because what that ultimately will do is it start to correct your form. And then you, you will find that the cost of energy in, in the form of heart rate um, will significantly go down over time, or at least your pace will go down relative to that, that heart rate number. And then, you know, as we're getting into this conversation, when we want to work on speed, when we want to go, you know, try to attempt in, in that faster, that faster pace, we're going to, we're going to run into a few different things, whether it's overstriding, whether it's, you, you know, to your point, your heel hitting the ground in a different state, so these are things that you become more conscious of when those things happen. And ultimately, to, to your point, if you correct them over time and correct me if I'm wrong, um, you will be able to run to that speed that you are, are striving for with correct form and less energy. Yeah. And the, I, I've got to tell you, I, I've been to not a ton of races, but I've been to races of late where I'll sit at the finish line or somewhere near the finish line and watch people come cruising in to finish their race. And generally, you know, people put their, you know, their race face on when they know that there's a crowd and there's a finish line and it's almost over. They're going out as hard as they can. And you, how many people do you know, you've probably got one, that finisher pitcher, you know, they always take that picture of you crossing the finish line, and the contorted look that you have on your face your arms all kittywampus, your leg crossing your body, your heel jutting out ahead of your body. <laughs> your last moment of, of honor was to make all these mistakes and probably have been making them for who knows how long as you're trying to rush over to the finish line with your, your better race time. And the hard thing to do is have the discipline to teach yourself to correct these flaws once and for all, and then be studious enough to put in the work over time to stay on top of the flaws to make sure they don't come back. And I used the analogy before, I'm going to use it again today. My brother, who is about six years younger than I am, and that still makes him an old man, by the way, <laughs> uh, he just got back from Korea. He was in Korea because that's where he needs to go now to be tested. He's a martial artist. He's a master in Subak Do, which is a Korean version of martial arts. He's been at it since he was 13 years old. And he's now a seventh degree black belt. And I have to tell you, wow. the, the guy can do scary stuff. You know, not so much these days as as he was younger, but I've seen him do some scary stuff over the years, physically, just like, what, how did, how in the heck did you do that? But one of the things that he did that, that always kind of stuck in my mind, and he did this as a young man, you know what a sigh is? I don't. A sigh is a, an ancient martial arts weapon. Actually, what it was used for initially was to reap wheat. So try to imagine like a mini pitchfork. If you've ever seen Ninja Turtles, 
you might recall. I think I know what you're talking about. Okay. So it's like, it's like, uh, it's got a handle like a knife, but it's not, it's not like a sharp blade. It's like just a steel long point. So the point of it is probably, I don't know, about 18 inches long. And then there's two prongs to make like a fork, right? Is it like a trident? Yes. Okay. Okay. I guess that's the term for it. If you're not Korean. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, um, the way they do this, and and it was used initially to to parry sword attacks. So try to imagine I'm coming at you with a sword and you swing this thing down. So the point of the, the blade is at your elbow and the handle now is at your index finger. And so if you put your arm up like this, instead of me cutting your arm, it's going to hit that metal blade or that metal point. And then, okay. you, then you flick it forward. So you kind of swing it back around quickly where the point is down front and you could like stab somebody with it or poke them with it or whatever you want to do, right? Now, my brother, try to imagine this now. My brother would stand and he had a little plastic ring about the size of a half dollar. Just a little ring. And he had it suspended on a string from a light in his bedroom. So it was about nose height from him. And holding these sides, one in each hand, he would have them retracted so that the blade is down by his elbow and then swing one forward so the point would go into that ring and then pull it back and return it to that position where it was blocking his forearm. And he would alternate arms, almost like hitting a speed bag. He would flick that blade out into that ring and alternate one hand, one hand, one hand, one back and forth like that. Now, when he began that, so there, there is some rhyme to this reason, a reason to this rhyme. Of course. He did it very, very slowly, very, very methodically, and really precisely worked at the mechanics that were necessary to get that thing in that ring without touching or without breaking the, the ring from the string and then pull it back out again because realize if this, he hits the, the ring, it swings, and then you're not going to be able to do it the, the second time until it settles back down, right? Yeah. But he would leave that ring still where it wasn't moving and then produce these, these strokes into that ring um, just bang, 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 bang. Just stick it in that ring, alternating his arms. And it probably took him months and months and months to master that. The precision that he brought to play in order to put that, that pointed device into that small little ring was really pretty amazing when you think about it. Now, I use that analogy because in all martial arts, fundamentally they approach skill this way because it's a skill-based thing. Everybody wants to be the black belt. Everybody wants to break four inches of board with their forehead. <laughs> you know, when they, when they enter the class and they, you know, you know, they paid the initial money and they got their little uniform, they're like, they want to go be a black belt all of a sudden. But they're going to slow your butt down and they're going to fundamentally and very, very carefully bring you to this place where ultimately you're able to produce these dynamic feats at warp speed. So I try to use this analogy when I'm thinking in terms of running mechanics because this is how you become a more proficient and faster runner is by developing these skills. And what most people do is they dispatch all concern over the way they're moving in order to produce what they hope to be this end product, which is to run faster. And it's like banging your head against the ground or a wall over and over and over again, expecting that one day your head's going to go through that wall. And I think probably not. <laughs> yeah, and I, I could speak to that. I did uh, Krav Maga for about a year and a half to two years. And from the martial arts perspective, to your point, I mean, if you try to do a movement that you are foreign to fast, uh, you're going to fail. And I think there's a saying, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And going into that, I think the tendency with running, including, you know, myself, when I first got into just running and learning about it is you have one tend- you have one goal and that's to, to run fast, you know, to, to move, to move as quick as you can, you know, and I think 
it's all forgotten in, in the sense of the mechanics behind it, um, just because I think it's such a generality. And I think when you find that there are so many pieces to this puzzle and the more pieces you have connected, uh, you'll find that you're going to go faster, but you're going to be spending a lot more energy than the guy that is just trying to beat you in terms of pace without watching anything else he's doing. Right. Well, there's so much going on here and there's so many different doors to, to open when we speak of this because runners get injured. Such a high percentage of the running population are constantly injured. If you, if you Google it just to look, what the percentages of recreational runners are injured. It's crazy. It's, it's, more, it's more profound injury-wise than any other sport. And it's all relative to the same flaw. It's just never being taught how to run properly. And I'm going to avoid using the guy's name that we, we spoke of, you and I, that was potentially an interview to bring on the show. And I had told you, and I'll share it with the audience, there are a lot of people out there that are naysayers. They want to believe that, eh, you know, well enough is good enough. Just get used to what you do. Everybody has their own way of doing things. Um, they try to band-aid the problem with the way they're moving by trying to put a thicker mattress under their foot. You follow what I'm saying? There's There are so many different avenues that all stem from poor running mechanics and all these variations and approaches in theory that are flawed. It all comes back to the way you move. It's physics. Your foot was designed to make contact with the earth a specific way. The alignment of your joints and your muscularity and your tendons and your whole structure were designed for natural function. And when you start to think and uh, having the conversation with Dr. Romanoff from Pose Running, he said it best. He said, for millions of years, our bodies have been manufactured to, to be very precise and perfect. And then in the last 50 years, somebody comes along and tries to re-engineer the way we move by putting a, a mattress under your foot. You know, that's such a moronic mindset to think that, that that's where we are in time and space, that we are... We are smarter than our creator, whoever that might be. All right. And so running mechanics, when you get these things worked out, will keep you from harm, allow you to train more often, allow you to train at greater intensities, and will allow you to achieve greater speed. And I said it before, I'll say it today. There is a way to do this. And there are so many ways that we've tried to do it that don't work. And when we talk about stride frequency, for example, now I get it. There's a lot of variation in stride frequency relative to different circumstance. But I'm speaking in a generality. Let's just say, let's just say for the sake of argument, that Instead of 180 strides per minute, I start talking about 170 strides per minute. Well, that's easier for people to achieve. The reason it's easier for people to achieve is because they're allowed to slow their frequency down a little bit, which gives them time to overstride and make a mistake with the way they're landing. So it's easier. Bringing your foot closer to your center of mass requires more frequency, and that starts to draw your foot near. But it, even if you were at 170 strides per minute, if you were conscious of stride contact with the earth of each foot, in itself, you're developing bilateral equivalence. At least having adhered to some type of frequency caused you to shore things up where you're not leading with one leg relative to the other, which a lot of people do, by the way. And the proof in this is the way people get injured. Now, I don't know if you've dealt with any running injuries of late. But generally speaking, most people that get injured get injured on one leg 
or one side of their body relative to the other. Okay? So I blew out my knee. I strained my hamstring. I pulled my calf muscle. I got this plantar fasciitis on my left foot. It's always one side of the body relative to the other. And that is because one side is working harder than the other. So if nothing else, by adhering to a particular stride frequency, you're going to start to train the body to share the load equally, and you're already in a better place than you were before. 180 strides per minute tends to draw the foot nearer your center of mass, which incidentally will reduce injuries smartly. And yeah, I, I noticed that, especially, you know, just going out on runs, having that consciousness in terms of looking at my watch and making sure that uh, 180 is, is the precedent. Because, yeah, to your point, if you go into the 160 realm, the one, you know, the low 170 realm, it, it lends you to the, the point of you're, you're just you're going a little longer than maybe you should. And when you start to see that, let's say, ankle injuries arise or there's knee injuries or whatever comes of it, um, the 180 portion, and I've just noticed this, and I don't know if this is an abnormality or if this is something that holds true, but when I, let's say if on a run, I'm kind of 174, 175, and I get up to 180, what I find is my heart rate pretty much starts to, you know, in, in a few minutes starts to stay constant and then the pace starts to go down. So, um, your pace goes faster. My pace gets faster. Yes. Okay. Well, um, building on what I was just saying, the university of Wisconsin did a research study on stride frequency and basically running mechanics. And what they identified is that the average runner typically has a stride frequency of about 160 strides per minute. This is a pretty good indication of someone that's overstriding and heel striking. Okay? Absolutely. And what they found was by increasing the stride frequency by 5% was a 20% reduction in injuries at the ankle, knee, and hip. They found that by increasing the frequency by 10%, that the overall reduction in injury potential was 32%. Now, that draws you very close, if you're 160 strides per minute, to... So that would be 176, correct? Right. Yeah, okay. So try to imagine that you're like 160, you know, the range is very specific to an individual, but... Of course. Most overstriding runners are right about the 160, 165 range. But it's interesting to note that by reducing... Increasing the stride frequency by 10% puts you very, very close, if not right on 180 strides per minute. And you could potentially see a 32% reduction in the potential for injury from that frequency alone. Now, a lot of people get stuck when I talk to them about this because they think that their feet should be moving like a buzzsaw and keeping their stride beneath them. And that is not what I'm saying. The stride should actually open up behind you, which is a testament that you're getting good hip extension and you're getting good force production off the ground, which is driving you forward. So your stride length is actually getting longer, not shorter. It's just that your initiation with the ground, your ground contact is closer to you, which by the way, if you're making contact closer to your center mass, your potential for force production is far greater than it would be had you reached out ahead of you because you can't create force off the ground until your body comes over top of that foot. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I know, I, and I noticed that because, I mean, to this morning's run and pretty much every every aerobic run and things like that, when when your feet are closer to your body, the force production you just feel like you can get a stronger foot on the ground. And what that leads to, at least from my perspective, is powerful, powerful movement that is going in one direction, which is, you know, north and south. Um, and coupled with proper mechanics, the arm swing, uh, leaning forward, because I know that was one of my tendencies, I would lean back too much. Um, leaning forward in the proper manner, not obviously 
um, just <laughs> the hunchback of Notre Dame, but uh, you know, just more on, 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 on a, just a, a slight level uh, lends you to, to just better success. Well, and the, the thing that uh, I know people are probably scratching their head right now trying to envision what it is we're speaking of. Force to me sounds like effort, right? But the force production we're speaking of is really coming to you from gravitational force. So if you have a nice stride, so if you got good hip extension where you pushed off the ground well and your leg ends up trailing behind you relatively far, Again, testament of that stride length. That hip extension has a reciprocal response where you'll go into knee flexion. So it's like stretching the rubber band and letting it come back to its rested position. Your knee will come forward again. And as your knee comes forward and up due to that hip flexion, now gravity will push the foot down towards the ground again and if your contact is appropriate near your center of mass, the outcome is force that you garnered from gravitational push as opposed to you trying to create force to push your body through space. So you basically start to ride this wave of force production that's a resultant of gravitational force. If you have that forward lean, then you have this inertia and momentum pushing at your back and you're just, it's like riding a skateboard. You're just flying and it becomes effortless. And this is what I was talking about earlier. It's like you get to this aha moment where all these things kind of fell into place. And the outcome was you find yourself moving faster, even though the cost of the work has gone down. And most people attribute speed and effort with stress. The faster they go, the harder they work. And if you're working hard to create speed, it's a pretty good indication that you're probably already making a mistake. Clearly, there's going to be a point in the road where you start to near peak velocity and your force, it's going to be more difficult. Uh But there's going to be this place where there's sustainable pace that's significantly greater than it was once before. And this is what we're looking for. If you're a guy that can run a six-minute mile and... You can't run a 5.30 because it's just untenable. It's just something you can't do physically. It seems to be outside your wheelhouse. You always refer to these other guys as being genetically endowed, and you're just not that guy, and that seems to be your barrier. And all of a sudden, you start to clean up the way you move. You're going to start noticing not only like a 5.30 pace, but essentially getting down to upwards of a five-minute pace because you've just reduced the cost of work, You've increased your potential to put in more training volume. You've introduced the opportunity to create more intensity in your efforts without being injured for it. And at the outcome is you're going to create more more usable force. Now, if you're overstriding and you're landing on your heel or even your midfoot ahead of your center of mass, you're dealing with a lot of force because you're having to paw at the ground, which is going to really reach towards your posterior chain. This is where hamstring injuries come about. And you're working harder to get less. So the, the cap on all of this conversation is this. Motor skill drills are an opportunity for you to focus and hone in on the way you're moving, on the way you're running, and challenging yourself to try to create speed even briefly to the point where you find and identify what that mechanical threshold is. So, for example, let's just say that your mechanical threshold is at about a four-minute mile pace, even if it's only sustained for 10 seconds. Okay. When you get to the identification of what's the barrier from you turning that into a 330, maybe it's just not enough hip extension, Maybe it's not enough knee carry. Maybe that you're, you're crossing your midline and you're imposing this lateral deficit in your force production. Whatever it is, you're going to find it. And it's unique to the individual. I can't tell you what the list of things are. Well, I kind of did. The global things that are corrupt that cause you to, to slow down. But everybody has this un- unique characteristic. And you also have these unique key points that you have to, mantras that you have to think of 
when you've reached this mechanical threshold to make these corrections. But it's these recurrent episodes of trying to find that threshold and seeing what it is you can do to move it, even momentarily. You'll start to notice that it starts to result in more sustainable paces. You'll go faster. And my workouts, when I show them to people, typically are between 30 and 40 minutes. This is total workout time. So if you warmed up, cooled down, and did these brief repeats up to peak velocity, recovered to 120 beats per minute, produced another set. The important thing to keep in mind is there's no point in the road that you're trying to achieve. There's no time that you're trying to achieve. It's a function of finding the corruption and then backing off and then trying to solve the problem that's imposing that, that flaw. Whew. See why it's so, <laughs> see why it's so difficult to try? Oh, to- yeah, it makes sense. So I'll, I'll actually I'll, I'll point to something that you pointed out to me, and this actually happened during my VO2 test, but one thing huge flaw in my my gait and then my you know form was when I would go to hit the ground I would I I would hit in terms of the base of my foot uh or sorry near the toes but I wouldn't have my heel hit the ground right and what essentially was happening was I just I didn't have any force production if you know the force production pretty much came from you know the base of my foot so what happened was after I made that correction it was awkward uh to to say the least at first but i'm very sensory to it now in terms of pretty much that engine going in that that just constant flow and then obviously to your point once you have every all your ducks in a row um you just feel like you're gliding and you're gliding at pretty much a very sustainable heart rate and then a pace that you're more than happy with right well the thing that i haven't spoke of and I'm glad you brought it up because it, it made me think of it, is that you need to create stability to generate force. So with you not allowing your heel to settle to the ground, you never got to a completely stable position. And so you're discounting the potential for force production. And then you're also harboring tensions in your calf and Achilles that aren't being released. And ultimately, that leads to injury over time. So there's this mechanism, and it's a whole nother conversation, to be quite frank, is generating stability and generating stability quickly. The sooner you become stable, the more force you can produce. For example, if you're heel striking, let's get off heel striking for a minute. Let's just say that you're reaching out and you're landing toes first, but your, your foot is well ahead of your center of mass on ground contact. Mm-hmm. you're not going to get stable until your body reaches where, in fact, your foot is made contact with the ground. So there's a lag time between ground contact and your ability to achieve stability. Where if your ground contact is near your center of mass, you become stable faster. And because you're stable faster, it is going to keep you from all these corruptions, the hip drop and all this other stuff that happens. And then while I'm on the subject of stability, this has to do with mechanoreceptors in your feet. So the information that your body requires to make a decision to to impose the appropriate contractions to become stiff, to create this force, comes from the ground. It's this information that your body's looking for if you're wearing a really cushy-soled shoe, it's being muddled. You're not getting the information. That's causing the information to get to you later as well, or not at all. And you start to rely on the cushion as opposed to the musculature and your, your, your system of stability that's inherent in the body to produce this work for you. So it all kind of goes hand in hand. You've got to create stability. Stability comes from having your foot make contact with the earth closer to your body, initiating ground contact with your forefoot first, allowing your heel to make contact with the ground, causing a nice stable pillar right up into your pelvic floor, getting good force production, which is going to create a good hip extension and a reciprocal return to a position to create force once again. And now you're in it. Now you're, now you're rolling. 
And until you can get all those deal points worked out, you're always going to be second best. You're always going to be less of an athlete than you have the potential of being. That's, Makes that, sense. Sound kind of harsh? Uh, well, no. I mean, it, it does, I would say, to someone I think that is pretty rudimentary and maybe believes that they are one of the best or they are pretty good, but let's say maybe hasn't had the the, the, the TLC to the pretty much running protocol in terms of everything you just spoke to. And yes, they might be getting faster, but I think to previous conversations we've had, you know, one of two things will ultimately happen, you know, whether it's now or next year, um, either you're going to plateau or you're going to get injured. You know, uh, it, it's just a matter of time. So yeah. Bruce Lee said it best. <laughs> you know what I'm I know what's coming. I know what, I think I know what's coming. Yeah. But tell I, me I what I was going to say. Again. Uh, I think it's, you only know it until you get punched in the face or something like no, that. No, no. <laughs> uh, you see, now I've got you haunted. Uh, You're haunted. <laughs> it was Halloween yesterday. So. Yeah. Well, Bruce Lee said, a punch is a punch until it isn't a punch, and then it becomes a punch again. And what he was referring to is skill. If you walk up to most anybody and put them in front of a heavy bag and say, punch the bag. Untrained, they're going to flail at that bag, and their interpretation of what they just conducted was a punch. And then we set about teaching them what a punch is supposed to look like, how to generate force most efficiently, how the fist should make contact with the bag, and then it becomes a punch. You follow? So a punch in your mind is a punch until you find out that it's not a punch and then it becomes a punch once again. It, it, it's that scene in Karate Kid 2 where uh, <laughs> those Chinese guys are just trying to break the, the glacier of ice and then Daniel LaRusso with just great technique just immediately breaks it and just walks away. So, yep. yes. Well, it comes to – it really – I mean, I, I'm trying to create all these moronic analogies to try to get my of point course. across. But Absolutely. at the end of the, end of the day – you know, and, and I'm a fan of Bruce Lee, if it didn't sound like it, I am. And his whole thing was, you know, he's just a little guy, and the amount of force that this guy could produce was just astronomical. And I've had people say that some of the stuff that they have on YouTube on him was all manufactured and fake, and broke my heart when I heard somebody tell me that. I don't know if it's true or not, but at the end of the day, for a little guy, he was able to create some just crazy, crazy, crazy force. And it was not because he was stronger than everyone else, but he was such meticulous with his form and his technique. He knew what he was looking for. He knew what the mechanisms were that he needed to approach in order to achieve this end. And going down the road just because your friends are doing it and they try to go faster, so you try to catch them, if you really just kind of think of it, it's really kind of a irresponsible and moronic process when it's going to lead you to injury. And I'm telling you, when you I go, like the New York Marathon is going to go off this weekend. i got a few, few of my people are going. And the good news is my folks that are going to go will not get hurt. They will not get injured doing that marathon. They might not be as fast as they like to be, but guess what? You know, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Sarah. She's going. She's going to be 74 years old. She's running the New York Marathon. Wow. Put that in your head for a minute. Best of luck to her. No amount of work that she does leads to injury because I've been chasing her around in her head, trying to drive that punch as a punch mentality into her, into her head. And... She's going with another lady, Inga. She's coming up on 67 years old. And, you know, I'd like the training to be a little better for both of them. Life gets in the way. They get a little, you know, not as important to do it, but going to do it anyway. But the fact that they can do it, right? The fact that that late stage in their life, they're even having a contemplation of running the New York Marathon. Isn't that where you want to be one day, where... When you get to that point in your life, you can still pull this stuff off 
and not be concerned. You know, people, oh, you know, 40 years old. Oh, I can't do that anymore. I got bad knees. I, I've got a, you know, I hurt my hip and running, running's not good for you. I hurt myself when I run, right? How many times do you hear that? I hear it every single day. Right. And it's funny, you, even on social media, you see the threads, people talk, oh, no, I don't do that anymore because, uh, you know, it really is bad for your hips, bad for your knees, bad for your la 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 la. And I just want to choke them because what's bad for you is doing things poorly. You know, I just, I'm getting onto a rant here and I, I don't mean. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's amazing because, you know, running is such a cultural phenomenon in the sense that from the casualist perspective to obviously someone um, of your stature or someone that really just focuses on it from a, a top down level to every intricacy known to known to man or woman. And what happens is, is when something like this is a cultural phenomenon, you see the things like, oh, a mattress for your feet or, oh, you need to do this or, oh, you need to do that. And unfortunately, as I was in my early stages doing this, you become very naive to the fact that, yeah, that, you know, that person has, makes some sense or, you know, whatnot, rather than actually doing some really conclusive research or really testing out for yourself. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to really hurt. Oh, but th this is going to work out sooner or later. You know, so, I mean, it's just. That, that's, I think, the challenge, and I mean, you, I'm just preaching to the choir here. This is the challenge you face pretty much ever since you got into running uh, in terms of education. So it's, yeah, it's, it's rough. Well, myself included, like many, they run because they enjoy it. And maybe initially, and depending on how old you are, let's just say that you're in your 20s and you're, you know, at your, you're at the peak of life, you're, you're, you're robust, you're strong, you're viral, you, everything about you is, is just happening. And you go out and run, you get away with it. You run four, you run five, you run six, you run eight miles, not a problem. Your body's strong, it gets away with it. But then you start putting more and more work together and then the flaws start to overcome your virility. You're no longer strong enough to put up with the things you're doing to your body. Or you start to become competitive and you start to realize that there's a limit to the performance you can create with the flaws that you're generating. And mind you, there are a lot of people out there that perform really, really, really well, even though the way they move is flawed. Of course. I, I told Michael Johnson, who was to this day one of the fastest runners in the world ever, that he ran like shit. And he, you know, he started laughing. He said, I haven't lost a race since I was six, you know, and now he's retired, right? And he's still got world records. But if you look at the way he ran, he got away with it. No one else can do what he did and get away with it or produce the type of speeds that he produced. He was a freak and he was quick to admit it. Anyway, I want to shut this down. We're going long here, but I just want to say this, okay? All of the people that I'm coaching from a virtual perspective that are going to listen to this, I want you to think long and hard about what I've been saying. Because if you are struggling with your ability to find speed, dollars to donuts, the problem is that you're bypassing some type of flaw, allowing it to occur, and it's keeping you from producing the type of results you're looking for. When I start throwing these workouts up there, I want you to start paying attention to this conversation. Because if you just started today, got out on the road, and started to focus on the deal points that I just laid out for you, you're going to start to notice some improvements. It may not happen today, it may not happen tomorrow, but it's going to happen. And there's going to be that conversation where you call me and say, dude, you're not going to believe what I just did, you know? And I'm, yeah, I do believe what you just did because <laughs> I've been barking about it for a decade. I know. And I've had countless people that I worked with that have come to this place finally where they were able to get past these limitations and produce these ult ultimate or uh, optimal workouts or performances. So that's my rant for today. Hey, I, I was glad to be a part of it, so... Yeah, so I hope I've got into your head. You've got the, the Dallas Marathons coming up. Mm -hmm. Is it this weekend? No, it's uh, it's December 10th. 
Um, okay. So um, New York you know, is this weekend. That's right. Yeah, New York is this weekend. So gunning for that. We're very happy with uh, how things are going. You know, it's funny today. Uh, I know we spoke to it last podcast, but this was the first time I've actually gotten to do aerobic mileage on a track. So my times I was pretty impressed with uh, just because to, to the point last um, the incline uh, was there when I on my normal base runs. So I'm pretty excited about it. I got to tell you, in my book, I talked about initial dedication to process. And I broke it into a periodized fashion. I said 80% of your volume should be aerobic and 20% should be skill-based for the first six weeks of a training program. And then progressively start introducing some lactate tolerance training and so on and so forth. This Again, this is a whole other topic. But I can tell you that if you're trying to go long, if you're trying to run a marathon, if you did nothing else but, but focus on getting more efficient with your aerobic conditioning and improving your skill sets, your speed will come to you easier. Your, your sustainable paces will come to you less expensive. Instead of running that seven-minute mile, it becomes a 6.30 mile. And for those that are running a 10-minute mile, it'll turn into an 8.30 mile. And it just happens. If you didn't do anything but those two things, it makes a huge difference. But you have to be true to form. You have to make sure that what you're trying to achieve is actually occurring. And you're working on these motor skills. Make sure that you're getting it done. Because, again, perception is, is an ugly thing. You, you think you got it going on until somebody shows you the video that, it, that bears out, quite frankly, that you were doing something completely different. I mean, it's a commitment, but I think to the points we discussed and you know, you start out very, I guess, aware. And then once you have that aha moment, that's all you think about when you run. I mean, I mean, all the time when I run, I I think of, and thanks to the Garmin watch, I see, Hey, where am I at on a cadence per minute? Where is my heart rate? You know, what are these things? And then having data after just to understand, you know, what, where is my stride and, and just the sensory input of just how, how I'm seeing things and how I'm feeling you know, lends me, has lended me to get a lot better in terms of my aerobic engine and, and feeling pretty good about this marathon. What's interesting about this whole conversation is that most people operate under, under the auspices of the study of one. And in your case, we're having that conversation where your epiphany of the way your body feels, the way you're responding to the work you're producing, that's the study of one. I sit out in my life is observing, training, educating, observing, training, educating. Countless people where I see time and time again, when I coach them into the appropriate type of running form, that their effort goes down, their speed improves, and it freaks them out. You know, under my tutelage, they're getting that opportunity. Now they go home, they might screw the pooch after that, but I can get most people, and it's almost like a thing with me these days, to get them to produce a six-minute pace on the treadmill for me when that's something they had never done before. And when I tell them that they're running that fast, they're usually surprised. They're like, what? I'm doing what? Because they didn't even perceive it. Their effort was so much less than they typically would have when they find a barrier that's so much slower than that, they're taken back by it. Now, this is given the circumstance where they're being coached and guided to a process. I thought about doing an audio tape that people can plug in their head and and run with it. But I I think that probably require a whole new set of therapy to have to listen to me for a long time. (laughs) But anyway, that was the theme. I think we've beat this thing to death. And I just hope that there's people out there that are going to benefit from this conversation. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, any, any followers of you, any followers of the podcast, I think will appreciate this because, it you know, all, although we're saying a lot of the same things, I think in, it just resonates in different capacities when you break it down from aerobic based conditioning, motor skill development, anaerobic training, and all these different facets because they all connect at the end of the day, like you said, almost that, that running flow chart to get to the desired goal. But uh, I think you know, the, the quest uh, to greatness in this, this sense comes one at one step at a time. So, well, 
you know, speaking of the uh, the podcast at large, it's called the Natural Running Network. And you and I discuss what guests we're going to bring on, how entertaining it might be if we do bring them on. And we're relying on conversation and, you know, the fortitude and uh, magnificence of an individual that we're going to bring on to speak with. But at the end of the day, people that kind of follow this podcast, they do it because they want to learn something that's going to help them improve. It doesn't do you any good to hear about how well somebody else is performing, right? You're more interested. Oh, yeah. What can I do to get my butt down the road quicker, right? Yeah. And you're right. It's kind of a shallow focus when you think about it. And it does get regurgitated a lot of different ways. But at the end of the day, you're right. There's going to be that moment where, ding, somebody gets it. They Something we said resonated with them. And it made a difference for him. And if I can make that little difference every now and then for somebody out there in the world, I think that's it's worth it. I agree. Let's go home. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.